0: Hi, I'm Lucas. And I'm Brian. And this is the Quacks Podcast. Hey guys, welcome to the podcast. So, I have another interview for you guys today. I am getting more and more interested in the microbiome and it's just effects on our health. So, I've been seeking out people to interview On the subject. So today I have on Christina Campbell. Uh, She's a contributing editor at Microbiome Times and she's been a science writer in biotechnology and the microbiome for many years. Uh, She is an author of the book The Well Fed Microbiome Cookbook, uh, published in 2016, and the co author uh, of an academic textbook, Gut Microbiota Interactive Effects on Nutrition and Health. Uh, She has a website, buychriscampbell.com, with articles and a newsletter on the microbiome, all really interesting stuff. She gives a great synopsis of where the science is at right now, and really, it's just getting started, but, you know, microbiome research is one of the fastest-growing areas of research out there, so enjoy the interview. Hey, Christina, how are you doing? Welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you so much.
0: So I'm really happy to have you here um, and dive into this whole microbiome thing. It is a bit like going down a rabbit hole. There are so many different bacteria all having an effect on your health as well as each other. And trying to change it just seems kind of like trying to hit a moving target. So I'm really happy you're here. Before we dive in, can you tell the audience about yourself and just how you became interested in this topic?
1: Yes, I'm very happy to be here, Lucas. Um, Yeah, so I'm a writer and... It was about 10 years ago, I was having a lot of digestive issues of my own, Um, really could not seem to figure out what was wrong and I kept having these symptoms. I think it's a pretty common story, especially for women. And, um, you know, I went to my doctor, I didn't get the answers I needed and that would relieve the symptoms. So I started uh, looking into digestive health and I came across um, a community of people who who did fermented foods. And through that, I started learning about the microbial communities, and I became aware of this really fast-growing, emerging area of science, which was uh, microbiome analysis. And, you, you know, it was being applied to foods, but also to the human body and to um, environmental areas and samples. So ah. um, since then, I just started saying, wow, this is amazing, and then I couldn't uh, stop learning.
0: Wow. That's, uh, that's pretty awesome. If, if you don't mind, I don't know if it's too personal, you don't have to share, but what kind of symptoms were you having?
1: Essentially, um, it was symptoms like irritable bowel syndrome, although I never got that diagnosis. And so, of course, um, at the time, my doctor recommended getting celiac disease testing and a lot of things. And I was experimenting with my diet, trying to figure out if I could reduce the symptoms Um, But in the end, I didn't get a diagnosis. And I just really kind of changed my diet and my lifestyle a lot to um, eventually kind of overcome the symptoms. And, and right, you know, today, I don't have them anymore. um, But I sort of, yeah, attribute sort of a long process of, um, you know, small tweaks uh, to the reason I don't have the symptoms.
0: Okay. So, if someone is new to the microbiome, you know, they've never really heard of it before, what's the 30,000-foot view perspective? You know, what do they need to know?
1: So, yeah, basically, and this is what just got me right away, you know, and I'm a science writer, and this just blew me away uh, when I realized this, that, you know, you have as many or more microbial cells in the envelope of your body than human cells. And, I mean, just right away, that has implications, right? You've got all this genetic material that's not yours. And um, and then the whole process of the past 20 years and, and into the future is a process, a scientific process of figuring out what that means and what that means for health. Um, so that's the main thing to know. And I guess just on a, a superficial level, um, some have called this... Uh, this collection of microorganisms associated with your body they've called it an organ or they've called it like a living ecosystem of which you are a part there's different ways to describe it but essentially it is uh being linked with all kinds of functions in your body uh a huge one is the immune system and modulating levels of certain immune cells depending on which specter you have especially in your gut Hmm. um linked to metabolic health, and we'll probably talk more about that later, um, and linked to even um, aspects of brain function through the gut-brain axis and the influence of the microbes. So just, you know, you can think of the profound influences on health and disease that are just, you know, we're starting to uncover them, but um, there the potential is there.
0: Yeah, I think potential is a really good word. Um, you you know, you mentioned that we have more of these bacteria in our you know guts or in our bodies than we do cells what i mean i'm trying to kind of wrap my head around that what does that imply does i mean does it imply that they're more important in some ways than our cells or what does that mean
1: it's really hard to say i mean um it could Uh, there's certainly a lot more genetic information contained in the microbes than in your body and so, I mean, you know, scientists who worked in the field 20, 30 years ago have told me that, you know, when the human genome was finally sequenced, um, people were really excited because they thought they had unlocked all their, they were going to unlock everything there was to know about human disease because all you had to do was correlate it with the right genes. But now this, you know, they, they realize that's not always possible. Um And now, this is kind of a similar phase where you're like the uh, the scientists are thinking, oh, you know, maybe if we take the genetic plus the microbiome information, combine all that, maybe we can, you know, get a little further in understanding some of these diseases that, quite frankly, we have no idea, you know, the etiology of them. Um, Hmm. You know, there's a ton of chronic diseases, as you probably well know, that. Um, medical science, there may be some treatments, but we really don't know where they come from. We know there are genetic risk factors, but that doesn't account for all of, you know, why they happen. So I think this is a really um, exciting field in that it combines things we know about diseases from the past, you know, from the research that's already been done and adding this new facet and seeing if, um, you know, using sophisticated techniques like machine learning and you know the bioinformatics uh, applications uh, to microbiome data. Mm-hmm. They can figure out, um, you know, or predict better who will get it and how they get it.
0: Okay. So how how tightly do you think uh, the microbiome and you know its change and then people's symptoms changing? How tightly do you think those things? correlate i mean if somebody changes their microbiome uh, i mean can they will their symptoms change or is it kind of a loose correlation i don't don't know do you kind of see what i'm asking
1: yeah i think so it really depends on the disease and i think by now at this stage in the research um, there are multiple lab groups around the world working on almost every chronic disease you can think of and it's going to be probably a different relationship between the microbiome and the symptoms, in, you know, in every case. Um, so I guess the, the one that's the closest, uh, the closest linked at the moment is uh, recurrent C. difficile infection.
0: Hmm.
1: And of course, um, you may know it's just as an overview, um, when people are in hospital and taking a lot of antibiotics, they tend to get colonized by this pathogen called C. difficile um, Clostridioides difficile., uh, it's been renamed recently from Clostridium difficile. Oh, Anyhow. I know um, yeah, so essentially, um, the the gut, the colon, um, gets wiped out by the antibiotics, leaves room for the the pathogen to colonize, and people get very sick. And then, of course, the treatment is more antibiotics. And you know it can create a vicious cycle where people clear up on antibiotics then they get, they're more susceptible to the pathogen again, happens again and again, and it recurs. And, you know, eventually, uh, the people are really, you know, almost near death. So it's, it's really quite life threatening. But um, what they found is that replacing the microbial community through a fecal microbiota transplant, which is essentially, you know, poop from a healthy person, it, it clears this up almost immediately. And, so that, you know, that's a pretty compelling case that the microbiome is, plays a big role in that condition. But for almost every other condition, it's not as clear. Um, fecal transplants have been tried in clinical trials for a lot of different conditions, not with anywhere near the, the level of success. Um, but there are other ways that scientists are trying to get at the causality
0: yeah, that is really interesting. We did a podcast about antibiotics and we talked about C. diff and it, it's just a horror story if you get that. I mean, you end up having to take a lot of antibiotics of like last resort and it just nukes your entire gut of of healthy bacteria. So, I mean, that, I just can't imagine Right,
1: it. right. And I guess for listeners who are not familiar with what antibiotics do, yeah, essentially, you know, you have this beautiful thriving ecosystem Uh, normally in your gut and antibiotics no matter why you're taking them they are a bit of a carpet bomb right (laughs) they kill quite a few of the microbes and uh, narrow spectrum uh, antibiotics are better than um, the broad spectrum but the broad ones you know kind of indiscriminately kill a lot of the microbes Um, the good news is in adults often the community bounces back you know when they've studied um Patients over a course of a few weeks, often the microbes bounce back, but sometimes they don't, or sometimes key species are still missing after this course of antibiotics. So, um, yeah, I think it's just worth considering that um, when taking antibiotics for non-life-threatening reasons.
0: Yeah. So, one thing you mentioned was the ecosystem. And I learned from Ken Lassison, who runs this site about, you know, the microbiome and chronic fatigue, that, you know, these bacteria, they have different levels, and a good bacteria at a very high level might actually be harmful. It might do the opposite in you. And a bad bacteria at a very low level might actually provide some benefits. Is this true, or have you heard of anything like this?
1: Absolutely. Like, it's so complex when you're talking about ecosystems. Um and, and it makes sense in a way, if you th- just think of a simple, <laughs> well, not even simple, an ecosystem in a forest, right? Um, it's very hard to label even one type of organism as good or bad. So, you know, you might have bears in this forest. Um, are bears good or bad? Well, that depends how many and in what context. Are mosquitoes good or bad? Are dragonflies good or bad? Are pine trees? So it's very hard to uh, label per se, you know, a microbe, as good or bad. So I think among the scientists, um, they just don't. I mean, there are things called pathogens, which are, yes, they cause disease in humans. So those can fairly be called bad bugs. Um, But (laughs) as for the rest, it's really not clear. And I guess the closest to good bugs might be um, the bacteria that fall under two genera, Two categories. Um, those are lactobacilli and bifidobacteria. And those are, um, each of those categories has a huge variety of microbes. And in fact, the lactobacilli, just as a side note, have just been split into 25 further groups by scientists um, just last month. So they're not all called lactobacillus anymore. But um, essentially, these two historical groups of bacteria are the main ones that you would find in probiotics. And they're present, a lot of them are present naturally in the human gut, and are sort of the purportedly good bugs. But then again, we don't know how much of them, we don't know if you can have too many, um, what happens, you know, if your body's dealing with too many. So yeah, I would hesitate to call them, you know, categorically good.
0: Yeah, it, it's tough because I know the Ken Lassison guy, He one thing he found was that people with chronic fatigue actually tend to have too much lactobacillus and bringing those down ended up helping a lot of them, which I thought was very strange um, because what you hear is lactobacillus is good, you know, bifido is good. So, I mean, it is it is kind of a wacky situation.
1: Right, but then if you consider the overall context, yeah, maybe there's a reason you know, that it was good to bring down that because then some other bugs who had a good function could um, could thrive or, yeah, it's it's all very complicated. And definitely, you know, people who are getting the microbiome testing, um, at this stage, we really can't tell much just by looking at what's there in your gut, um, can't tell much about your health at all. Um, so, but I think in the future, when we have more sophisticated um, algorithms and such that link these to health, um, we'll be able to tell much more.
0: Gotcha. So I think one thing most people are interested with the microbiome is probably, uh, its ability to change the metabolism, you know, and help them lose weight. What have you found in the research in these areas?
1: Yeah, that's a great question because I think several years ago, there were some very exciting mouse, mouse studies that showed, um, you know, weight was modulated in mice by just simply replacing the bacteria in their guts. Um, and I think that was really neat research, but it's really, um, the follow-up work has not managed to show the same phenomenon in humans. Um, so the thing is, um, I think currently in the research, and I just did a, a webinar on this, uh, for dietitians with a, a dietitian friend of mine, Natasha Hasky. um, so there's a difference between um, sort of the the blood sugar spikes and insulin resistance versus the actual weight. Hmm. So those are they both kind of are related to you know metabolism, but the microbes seem much more involved in the the insulin resistance and the type two diabetes kind of um, symptoms rather than actual weight. And that bears out on a couple of levels. Um, I think probiotics, some probiotics are uh, seem to be effective at sort of managing the symptoms of type 2 diabetes and the insulin spikes. And whereas um, it's really hard to find a probiotic, um, if, if there are indeed any, that would actually modulate weight. I think you know, there are some promising ones that maybe have one or two studies done about them, some promising probiotic strains by mm-hmm. various companies. Um, but yeah, as a rule, um, if you just take probiotics, you, you shouldn't expect to lose weight. Okay. Um, yeah.
0: So there does seem to be a lot of in- agreement around the Ackermansia bacteria. I'm, I'm not sure if you've heard of that one, um, that it helps yes. with, with metabolic disease. Would that be one of those bacteria that could help people be slimmer?
1: It's possible. I think it's just um, being tested. So, so I guess um, a couple of things about um, sure. The There are various strains of it, obviously. So um, the thing about probiotics, when you use them to modulate your gut microbiota or achieve any sort of health benefit, it's important to know what strain you're working with because um, even different species have multiple strains that could all do different things. So um, yeah, and and so I think they found, so some strains are what they call uh, generally regarded as safe or grass. So they can be available as probiotics under the current sort of regulatory regime. And in fact, there's one, um, I think one company has a multi-strain probiotic with acromancia. An acromancia strain hmm. that is for type 2 diabetes um, and managing HbA1c levels, I believe. Interesting. And so that one is available now, but um, some strains of acromancia are not sort of grad, they don't have the grass status. And so they therefore have to go through testing um, as drugs and be administered like for a disease as a drug. And so this is happening as well. I think a group in Belgium is working on a strain, or maybe more than one strain, of Acromensia um, as a drug for yeah weight loss or um, some other kind of metabolic endpoint. Mm. So, I think um, yeah, the jury's out. And the interesting part of the, the work from Belgium was that um, they they pasteurized the Acromensia in one of the trials they killed it basically and found that it still worked. And it was just one of the proteins in the bacteria that actually had the effect. Uh, And in that case, I, I anticipate they would not give the whole, the live bug because that, you know, from a regulatory perspective, that's very complicated and introduces a lot of problems with, you know, getting this product to consumers in a way that's, you know, makes the bug stay alive. So, I anticipate, yeah, if they found it was the protein, they would just administer the protein somehow um, and to have the same effect. So it's definitely one to watch, although I think, you know, at present, um, there's not much people can um, can do in terms of, like, going out and getting acromancia. Again, there's that multi-strain probiotic for that specific reason of type 2 diabetes.
0: Yeah. Do you know if that's through a prescription or can people buy that online?
1: I believe it's uh the status is a medical food, so you can buy it directly. Um, a doctor can recommend it, but um, it is sort of available to people. and uh, the I think the company is called Pendulum
0: Pendulum. Yeah, so any, yeah, okay, i'll I'll try and find that and put that in the show notes. So with acromantia, you know, I've kind of done some research on perhaps ways to raise it. Uh, I know cranberry and pomegranate might be a way to raise it. And I know metformin, there's some studies showing metformin actually raises acromantia. Do you know of any ways to increase it off the top of your head?
1: Not off the top of my head, but I think you've hit on something really important there with uh, the diet because, um, you know, what I didn't say before is that the microbiome in the gut um, is profoundly influenced by diet. And so, um, when we change the way we eat or increase certain foods, um, definitely we're, we're able to modulate, uh, the bugs that are there and possibly in a a good way, uh, to affect a disease or a condition we might have. So, yeah, I think that's a really key thing. And, and, You know, I focus a lot on diet. In fact, I wrote a textbook on gut microbiota and diet with uh, Natasha Hasky, who's a dietitian, and Ed Ishiguro, who's a professor of microbiology. Um, And yeah, and I guess, you know, laying out the parameters for this. And basically, I think that the overview of it is that, you know, to the extent that diet can affect the course of a disease, the microbiome might be the reason for that. Hmm. So, um, in, in some cases, so, you know, inflammatory bowel disease, for example, not sure if you know anyone with that.
0: Um, Um, yeah, I, I know some people with that.
1: Yeah. And so, you know, I have a lot of family members with that and, um, they're always trying to change their diets, uh, to try to, you know, tamp down the inflammation so they don't have a flare um, and some of them, you know, have very eclectic eating patterns or eating um, regimes to try to keep the inflammation low. But if you look at the research and if you ask most doctors, they say, well, we don't know what, you know, <laughs> what is the diet for IBD? Like hmm. there's, there's nothing that's been proven to help IBD. So you're just kind of, I don't know, you're self-experimenting and there's no science to it. But, you know, so essentially it seems very personalized um, and now there's this body of work that shows, well, maybe it's kind of the combination of the diet you have and then the microbes you have that, that cre- uh, contributes to the inflammation and to a flare. And so that would explain why people have such personalized diets that seem to improve symptoms for them. So this is an ongoing body of work, and um, I really hope it bears fruit. Uh, soon just really like you know being precise about you know which bugs and which diet in combination will you know keep you symptom free
0: yeah you mentioned fermented foods uh do you have any fermented foods that you like and maybe some that you don't like
1: yeah i you know i i love fermented foods i love eating them and i'm such a fan of the people who make them (laughs) that's initially how i got into this whole um field in, you know, just the, the beautiful idea that you're creating something out of um, out of your own environment. You're inviting the microbes in your environment into your food to change it and then to, you know, you consume that. So um, I just love that idea. Um, and yeah, I guess it's funny you now with the, the pandemic, I've been focusing a little more on some fermented foods of my own. Um, I've always done uh, even before the pandemic, I had a kefir that I loved. And and kefir is actually one of the better fermented foods if you want to modulate your gut microbiota. Um, some of the food scientists that I've talked to have said that that is one uh, fermented food that does have a measurable effect, hmm. even more than yogurt, uh, for what that's worth.
0: What do you mean by modulate?
1: So that when you eat it in like a decent enough amount, you can actually see a difference before and after in your microbiome. So something about the kefir changes the composition of the microbes in your gut. Um, That's in contrast with maybe something like yogurt. Sometimes you you, you can pick up the yogurt microbes in the gut, but most of the time they kind of pass right through and they don't colonize, so you can't detect them once you eat them. Um, So, I mean... It, it's not necessarily that they have to colonize to get any health effect, because I think yogurt has been shown to have some good health effects. But um, if your goal is to modulate your gut, then yeah, kefir is a good one. Um, and I have a, a kefir kefir grains that I, I keep and I, I consume the, the kefir. Nice. Um, kombucha. That's personally I'm not uh, that much into kombucha, but some people love it. Um, and I have just, uh, during the pandemic gotten a sourdough starter from a friend.
0: Oh, nice.
1: So that's really, it's been fun to experiment with that. And, and that one's a bit different because when you consume the bread, the microbes are not alive anymore. Um, you know, so some people say, oh, maybe that's a sign they're not as, you know, effective. I don't know the health effects of, of the, um, you know, the dead microbes, but certainly any food with live microbes uh, has the potential to have, you know, some sort of health benefit.
0: Gotcha. So one thing that I don't know anything about, and I know you've looked into quite a bit are these uh, fecal transplants, you know, where basically like you said, you take some healthy person's poop and put it in your colon. Um, so what, what can you tell us about these?
1: Yeah, it's really interesting. I mean, in medicine, they're really only, you know, appropriate to be used for um, recurrent C. difficile infection, as we chatted about. Um, and all other reasons are experimental. Um, and, you know, when I first learned of these, I thought it was so compelling. And I thought, wow, like, is this a new medicine you could administer yourself? And it's, it's really cool. And it could have profound effects. Yeah. But, you know, the more people I talk to, um, especially you know, in the medical field, they said, Well, okay, just examine the logic here. So, if you think that a lot of these chronic diseases are, you know, have some causal relationship with the gut, and you want to go around, you know, replacing those gut microbes, giving people a new um, you know inoculation, if you will,
0: mm-hmm.
1: with gut microbes, like you you' you could be doing something profound to their health. and if it's a chronic disease, it might not show up right away. Hmm. And so I came to think, you know, yeah, there there's actually um, kind of a safety risk here. In fact, a possibly a big safety risk that you could be transferring chronic disease. Um, anecdotally, I know of somebody who um, had a fecal transplant and developed like a severe anxiety. Um, that's just one personal, you know, uh, connection that I had, but... Um, So it's not scientific, but there is also um, the, I think the American Gastroenterological Association is now keeping a database of people who get fecal transplants for C. difficile and trying to track any side effects that are reported years and years later. So I think we're in the middle of learning about that. Um, There might be some unexpected effects over time, and that there's there's a registry to track that. So, I guess to me, you know, for my own health, I guess at this point I would be very reluctant. I would I would not do a fecal transplant um, unless I had recurrent C diff, um, and for all other you know indications, I'd probably wait until um, there's more medical evidence that that um, you know could help. And there are also um, I think companies trying to develop products that would like take away the risk and give the benefits of a fecal transplant. And so creating like cocktails of bugs that are meant to, um, you know, cause I, I guess sometimes during a fecal transplant, you can, you can transplant um, viruses that are, you know, they're they're not, there aren't very many of them in there, hmm. but they could potentially given the right conditions, you know, Uh, really make you sick and so in the the they're called like synthetic cocktails or whatever of of um bugs those are not present even in trace amounts right Hmm. it's just a completely sort of clean consortia of bugs um and some of them i mean who knows if they're effective there there are some going through clinical trials right now and i guess time will tell
0: yeah so probably not something people should do at home hmm
1: no, you know, at this point, I am convinced of that that it's it's not a completely safe thing. Um, and especially if you get I don't know, I've heard of people getting samples from their neighbor who seems really healthy and run marathon runs marathons, for example.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, but you know it's impossible when you're you know an individual to test that sample for every possible thing, and it's very expensive to test it for every possible thing that could be lurking in there. That could possibly, you know, make you more ill. Um, Because so uh, Open Biome, they're based in um, Boston and they have frozen fecal samples that they send out across the country and they've had to increase and increase and increase the amount they've charged for those samples because the amount of testing they have to do on them is incredible, like even one sample. And um, one of them, Mark Smith, when he was uh, in charge of Open Biome, he said to me, we have a lot of applicants to donate these samples, um, but it's harder to get into MIT than it is hmm. to be accepted. You have a better chance of getting into MIT than to, to be accepted as a, a poop donor for open biome. So you have to be just that healthy, you know?
0: Wow, what are they testing for? I mean, you said viruses, but is there something else they're looking for?
1: Um, all kinds of viruses and pathogens. Um, I think they want to know multi-drug resistant organisms, then, of course, um, at a time like this, they add on the testing for coronavirus. You know, every every sort of new major pathogen that emerges, they've got to add that to the regimen. So, um, yeah, I think it just gets to be uh, <laughs> quite a lot. Yeah. And, um, I think they have some recurrent donors and sort of now, by now, they can they're aware of anything major changes in in this person's health, and they can be a donor, you know, unless something major changes.
0: So do you know why there's such a difference in, you know, taking uh, probiotics or whatnot by mouth and then doing a fecal transplant? Because it seems like the fecal transplant is way more effective at changing the microbiome than taking, you know, a probiotic.
1: It's possible, yeah. I mean, you're definitely adding a lot more types of microbes with the fecal transplant. Hmm. Um, and But it's funny, because in some cases, um, even doing that, uh, the microbiome sort of bounces back to what the recipient had before. So it's not like a guarantee that you'll change things if you have the fecal transplant. I think in recurrent C. difficile, you do often Like, the recipient does often gain a set of gut bugs that look very similar to the donors. And, you know, the theory is that that's because it's sort of like it's been wiped out. It's kind of a barren landscape. And then this other sample, these other bugs come in and recolonize that landscape. Hmm. But in many other diseases, like, there's colonization resistance, right? Like, there's already bugs there that don't want to give up their niche. (laughs) They're stubborn. Yeah, And so um, it's very hard to actually affect a change. And with probiotics, um, the thing about them is, yeah, you know, the analogy I've heard is kind of like dropping apple trees into a desert and expecting them to thrive. Well, they, they're probably not going to take root and, <laughs> and thrive, but, That's a good analogy. um, on, on the other hand, uh, probiotics, um, the science on them shows that uh, they don't necessarily need to colonize and thrive there in order to have a health effect. So even by passing through as tourists through the gut, um, which they seem to do, they may be having some health effect by, you know, either boosting the level of certain immune cells or, um, yeah, however else, you know, boosting some kind of mucus layer, whatever mechanisms. Um, and then that has an effect on health.
0: Okay. So I know in the email you said, you know, you may not have much in the way of uh, actionable advice to give out, but from your research, you know, is there anything that you have changed in your life? You know, you mentioned before you had um, some IBS symptoms that affects your microbiome in a positive way.
1: Yeah, definitely. I mean, in terms of something medical, there's not much actionable advice at this point. Um, But I think definitely for me, it's been... A whole process of learning about the microbiome and diet, and really the dietary change, is is where I've seen a difference in my life. I guess, mm. um, and just you know, I guess before I just really knew I knew that food had an effect on my health, but the connection was not sort of very salient to me. And I I would eat a lot of sugar and probably too many fried foods, and I didn't really see why that was so bad, but you know, after learning more and writing more about the microbiome and talking to a lot of the nutrition scientists in the field, it's clear to me that um, the effect is more immediate. So what I eat is like immediately met by these microbes in my gut. And they try to make sense of it, you know, do whatever they do with it. Um, And if it's fiber, the microbes in the colon just love it and eat it up and then release these metabolites called short chain fatty acids, which um, again, there's a huge literature on them and how beneficial they are for various things in the body. And so, yeah, to me, it was like an aha moment when I realized, no, that like what you eat today, it matters and okay, fine. Like have a treat once in a while, but um, you need to feed them every day. Um, feed them their fiber and the things they want. And, uh, you know, and that can have just like a, I don't know, an effect. I almost feel more resilient that way, right? Giving mm. the microbes what they need on a daily basis so that, um, you know, they can thrive and then support my health. That's that's the realization that I've sort of made over time.
0: Okay. Is there maybe a list of foods that people could, you know, put down and say, I'm going to try these and see what their effects are?
1: Yeah. So I guess the two main categories to consider would be probiotics and prebiotics. And I guess I'm hesitant to recommend exact foods for each one, because I think, again, it's so personal in in terms of preferences and and even the effects on your body, but I can list some. So in the prebiotics category, um, there are foods. And and so prebiotics are essentially special forms of fiber. Um, They don't have to be fibers, um, but... Often they are hmm. uh, special forms of fibers that um, boost the good bacteria, that they act as food for the good bacteria. So in in the gut. And so these are um, inulin is a very common one. You can find prebiotics in uh, a lot of fruits and vegetables like um, I think onion, leek, bananas, Um, the Jerusalem artichokes, if you can figure out how to cook with those, uh, they have a high prebiotic content, um, and a lot of vegetables. So yeah, you can look up lists of prebiotic foods and those are great to, um, to add more to the diet. Okay. And there are also, of course, prebiotic supplements. Um, also resistant starch is really good, um, for feeding the microbes and, and so, yeah, it, you know, you can look up different supplements um, that might be useful.
0: Yeah. Are there um, any supplements that you like in particular?
1: Um, I'm trying to think. Well, I, I actually, the one supplement that I take regularly is resistant starch. Hmm. Um, but, yeah, there are different ones. There's um, Xylo, Oligosaccharide, sauce, And I think in the next while you'll see that one added to um, a lot of different foods. I think a lot of big food companies are thinking about ways to formulate different, uh, like snack foods and breakfast foods to incorporate some of these things. Um, And then oligosaccharides. So these are all things you'd see on a label of a food or um, maybe just like in a supplement. Um, Gotcha. Yeah. Um, And then the other category would be the probiotics. And considering um, maybe taking a supplement of probiotics, I do um, myself um, intermittently. I know I should probably be more, um, you know, regular about that. But um, I and the form that I preferred, this is just a personal preference, is the um, uh, like the drink form, like the yogurt probiotics okay. um, or like a yogurt drink type thing um, that and, and the ones that list the strains uh, that are in it. I think those are really, um, you know, that it's sort of a high quality product, higher quality product. If it will list the actual strains that are contained in it, that's one way to know.
0: Okay. What if somebody can't do dairy? Is there an option for them?
1: Yeah. I think like something like, um, the bio K plus shots, they have a version that's uh, soy,
0: Oh, okay. And so
1: you get the same probiotics in there, um, but with the soy base instead of the, the dairy base.
0: Okay. Are there any probiotics that maybe people should stay away from?
1: Um, again, I'm not sure. Like it's probably quite personal because I know uh, definitely when I was um, trying to get rid of my IBS symptoms, I tried several different probiotics and some had no effect. And then this one that I took, you know, the the symptoms were gone in like a day. So I did a lot of experimenting and and so I think it's hard to recommend um, one for all people, but um, yeah, it's just um, just trying different types. Um, I mean, technically, there are um, when you when you take a probiotic, technically, um, you should be, looking at the studies and seeing which probiotics are effective for which condition. Um, and there are a number that can be effective for IBS or, or bloating specific symptoms, you know, that, mm. that make up IBS. So, um, yeah, so I think it's hard to offer advice now. And in fact, some of the, the clinicians that are, you know, experts in probiotics, clinicians and researchers, they even have trouble pinpointing which ones will work right now. But um, I think, you know, as the body of evidence grows, it'll be much easier to, to zero in. But, but at this stage, it's kind of like, try one if you like it. And if it fits your lifestyle, hmm. then go with it.
0: All right. Well, this is kind of a crazy question that I ask a lot of my guests, but is there anything uh, you see in either mainstream media or online Uh, that's very popular that you think is just really bad advice with the microbiome?
1: Oh, there's tons of it. (laughs) (laughs) Because I think, I mean, it is such an interesting area and um, has so much potential. And I think I see a ton of people um, who have sort of jumped on the bandwagon. And, you know, the thing that is hard for me, because, you know, I'm a science writer and I care so much about the science it's hard for me to see when um, people are talking sciencey, but it's it's not based on science. So I don't know the old thing of blinding people with science, and mm. um, and I, I feel like that moves us backward, you know. And and people will start to have false hope, and then they'll be disappointed when the intervention or whatever it is it can't deliver. Um, so I guess a couple of just. Uh, specific tips maybe that people can watch watch for um, or that will help people to um, interpret some of the information they see about the microbiome. Yeah. Um, one is be very careful when you hear the phrase healthy microbiome. Um, mm. And I noticed, Lucas, you know enough about this area that I, I didn't hear you use that phrase today. And I think when a company uses that, like this will give you a healthy microbiome. Um, that's sort of a, it, it raises a question mark in my mind um, because as far as the science, uh, we don't know what a healthy microbiome is. And you and I, we just talked about the the difficulty of even identifying, you know, which bugs are good and how many of them you need. Mm-hmm. And so none of that has been sorted out. The, the microbiomes of healthy people are hugely variable. And so, we just don't know what a healthy microbiome looks like. So therefore, if you're promised that, uh, it may not be <laughs> valid. Yeah,
0: that that's actually really good because, you know, it's almost like saying, you know, if you're building a house, like a, a healthy wrench or a healthy nail, you know, or, or a healthy hammer, it's, it's kind of like, is it the right tool for the job? And your genetics are going into whatever the bugs genetics and what it's doing. And so it's, it it really is a personalized thing for each person. Uh, so that, that makes total sense. And anything else you see out there?
1: Um, yeah, I guess just, um, the language about what causes what, um, that's also sort of something that's commonly misused and, um, Yeah, I think people can be sometimes quite glib about saying, you know, oh, your microbiome controls your immunity. Um, But if you try to look at that again, just like empirically, like what does that mean? Um, And so at a time like this too, in, you know, we're dealing with this global pandemic of this, uh, the coronavirus, like, you know, I think it, it bears, um, Examining what exactly someone means by, you know, your microbiome supports immunity, and whether that specific um, connection has anything to do with coronavirus. I think I've I've seen a lot of communication lately about probiotics supporting immunity, but again, like the immune system is is like a delicate balance too, and maybe you don't want to support immunity in the wrong way, you know, (laughs) because you know you could in fact, increase your susceptibility potentially to the, the virus. So, yeah, it's just worth um, really being careful about the language, I think, or, or when people hear about uh, ways that, you know, the microbiome supports various body processes to try to really get back to like a, a specific study or, um, yeah, really verify that.
0: Gotcha. Have, uh, you know, you mentioned it, have there been any studies on the microbiome and this, uh, this virus that we're dealing with?
1: You know, in fact, I just uh, finished writing an article for an organization called ISAP. It's the International Scientific Association for Probiotics and Prebiotics. They um, wanted to just find out and do like a broad survey, like which researchers are, are working on that exact thing. And we found several that are trying to find out um, how yeah, microbiome science and probiotic science can be leveraged uh, for possibly treatments or even uh, preventative strategies for this coronavirus. So everything from as simple as, like, if you give probiotics to people in the ICU, are there better outcomes? There's a study, I think, kicking off about that. Um, Or maybe it's not even in the intensive care unit. It's just anyone with um, coronavirus. Mm. Um, But also, um, yeah, looking at, say, the lung microbiome and seeing if... Your, your, your starting lung microbiome has anything to do with the progression of the disease and your need for a respirator, that sort of thing. So these are, these are kicking off right now, some of them, and um, I hope we'll have answers. I mean, it's hard with a novel pathogen, right? Because nobody in the world has studied it before because it's novel. Um, so you've got to, all the science has to happen so rapidly. And of course, some of the first uh, publications were coming out of China where they had it and then now you're seeing publications by different, you know, people in various places in the world, but it's all sort of a race to get uh, data Hmm. right now.
0: So, one thing you mentioned was the lungs, and and I didn't really ask about this, but different parts of your body have a different microbiome. What what can you tell us about that?
1: Yes. So, various parts of the body, um, yeah, they, you know, they have different conditions. So, if you think of the conditions in your gut where there's not a lot of oxygen it's very moist there's new materials coming in all the time in the form of food that environment as opposed to let's say your skin um, the skin of your back let's say it's very dry right mm. um, uh, lots of oxygen reaching it so um, different conditions uh, make different microbes want to grow there And so you tend to have, and this was found in the Human Microbiome Project as well, which was the the first, one of the first large scale um, surveys of the the body microbiomes. Um, It was found that, yeah, you have a very different typical microbiome on your back versus your gut um, and all different parts of the body, um, even different skin microbiome sites. So like the palm of the hand versus the back. Oh, wow. Um, Those are different microbes, yeah. Uh, the lung um, the small intestine, the large intestine, um, the vaginal microbiome in women uh, so all these different sites have have typically like different microbes that cluster there and again there's variation person to person but you you tend to have like, there's, there's bounds around the types of microbes that colonize each site.
0: Okay. Do uh, taking probiotics or changing your diet, does that change, you know, your, your skin microbiome or your lung microbiome?
1: You know, that's still a bit of an open question, but I think um, there has been some interesting research that, um, yeah, probiotics that reach the gut do have an effect on the vaginal microbiome of women. So now. Um, there's a bunch of scientists trying to figure out if um, you could have probiotics, just like a supplement that would um, help things like um, bacterial vaginosis or things like that. So I think, yeah, it's, it's sort of a beginning area of research, but I think there there could be a lot of potential there. And yeah, it's kind of neat to think that Something you take that reaches your gut could possibly influence another body site, like like the lung, let's say. It's Wild, <laughs> um, and not just what you breathe, right? Because it it seems more intuitive that what you breathe and if you smoke that could influence the lung microbiome, and it seems to. But also, yeah, what you have in your gut.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. So we we only have uh, you know a few more minutes. Is there anything we didn't cover that you know might be interesting?
1: Um. I think, so one other area might be early life.
0: Um, Okay.
1: And I think that area will sort of grow in importance in the next years. And um, so there's a bit of debate over whether, you know, when a baby's in utero, whether the baby is sterile or not, you know, within the placenta. Hmm. And some research groups are saying, yes, we've definitely found microbes in the placenta, there's definitely a microbiome there and it's influencing the baby and others are saying, Nope, that's contamination. You know, mm-hmm. we think that the baby is pretty sterile if not completely sterile um, before birth. And then when the baby's born, that's when it gets colonized with their, you know, the first kind of wave of microbes. Um, and of course, um, yeah, if a baby's born sort of vaginally they get different microbes than if a baby is born via a C-section mm. and the C-section babies tend to have microbes on their bodies that are more typical of the skin and the hospital surfaces as opposed to, you know, the birth canal. So, okay. um, there's, yeah, there's some really interesting stuff. And then from there, from that first, um, inoculation of microbes in early life that we all had somehow rather, um, what does that mean for health? And like, there's this Um, critical uh, window to set up your immune system in early life. And, you know, the microbes you have in that window may kind of set you up on a trajectory for the rest of your life. And so again, this is, you know, when we're talking about the um, origins of a lot of chronic diseases and what causes them, there's a thought that this could be part of it. This could be a major part is um, the microbes you had at birth and shortly thereafter, and I'm, I'm not sure exactly how long the window is. Some people say like 100 days, mm. um, but it could be give or take. Um, what microbes you had then and how that affected your immune system. Um, so even that if your microbiome looks pretty normal later on, it's possible that you had things happen in early life that um, would have set you up for some know, to be susceptible to some chronic disease. So that all has to be unraveled. Again, you can imagine how difficult the studies would be to try to track babies for years and years and see what happens and measure all these different aspects. But uh, that is to come.
0: Yeah, I, I know in the natural world, there is a general belief that, you know, that first, whatever, 100 days of your life, you know, W- your bacteria and what you get and whether you have a C-section or you go through the birth canal and and that matters so much to your later health. And there's just, I mean, it's all anecdotal. There's just this belief that, uh, you know, people who have a cesarean section and then they don't get breastfed and then maybe they get antibiotics for ear infections a couple months later just seem sickly for their whole life. And obviously it's anecdotal. Um, and I, and I, what I hear you kind of saying is, those would be really hard to study
1: it would be although i think scientists are making progress and they use um, different models to try to sort some of this out um but i think yeah we're getting closer and and what what i find interesting too is um and you know i had two kids and and you know as as a mother it's it's interesting to kind of navigate nowadays the the kind of Western medical system and the way to have a baby there and versus um, some of the, the traditional supports that have been around women and to learn around those, um, you know, through history. So, um, you know, the doulas are um, something that it, it's optional nowadays, you know, not a lot of people have them, but that was always something that women had in many societies is like a kind of the birth coach and the emotional coach, mm-hmm um, around birth and, um, and now like we've kind of swung the other way where it's a very medicalized experience, um, with lots of numbers involved as you're giving birth, right? Like the, your rate, your heart rate, the baby's heart rate, all kinds of things. And, um, just trying to figure out, yeah, how the microbiome was supported by these traditional practices and, and how, um, yeah, whether we need to move back towards some of those things um, because of how they, they um, you know, protect the microbiome. For example, um, I guess these are questions I have, like, do people um, who have a doula to support them through birth, are they less likely to have a C-section? I don't know the data on that, but, hmm. um, you know, those are the types of things, too, that I think could bring us to a really integrated picture of early life and birth and um and how that supports the microbiome yeah
0: one more quick question that i i forgot to ask was about uh diversity i know a lot of people talk about diversity and how you know living in the cities and all of these antiseptics and stuff are damaging the diversity that we have and when we we don't have diversity you know we we can have health problems is there anything to that
1: i have heard scientists say that in fact one conference i attended in february um a scientist from Spain was saying that he thinks um, it's kind of a radical idea, but he thinks that microbiome diversity should be an end in itself, you know, as, as a marker of health. Hmm. Cause definitely, you know, across the board, almost, almost, um, the higher the diversity in the gut, um, the, you know, the better health. There are a couple of exceptions, I should say, um, that I think, um, Essentially, one group found that if you were very constipated, like a, a slow uh, intestinal transit time of food through your gut, yeah. um, that that led to really high diversity. So that's obviously not, not a healthy thing, but um, that's the exception. And mostly, like with many diseases, the way that they look in your microbiome is that they reduce diversity so, yeah, like, we, you know, IBD mm. and all kinds of other chronic diseases. So, yeah, so I think diversity is mostly a good thing. And, and yeah, people have hypothesized that there's this, like, missing microbes hypothesis where um, because of our modern lifestyles, as you say, like, pollution and antibiotics and, you know, poor foods, yeah. low fiber foods, we've kind of reduced the diversity and that's a bad thing. That's probably true on a general level. Although at, at this point, we don't have a cutoff to say like, okay, you have enough
0: diversity. Yeah, do you, do you know of any ways to increase your diversity, like rolling around in the mud or something?
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, definitely through diet, through more types of fibers in the diet. Mm. I think um, if you can do that, that, I think the American Gut Project found people who ate 30 or more types of plants per week, so kind of any sort of plant food, um, they had the higher diversity score. So definitely through diet. I mean, and maybe, yeah, through, um, you know, nature and exposing yourself to diverse sources of microbes, I guess there haven't been controlled studies on that. But I think um, it, it does make intuitive sense that, I mean, and it's hard for us now who are, all of us who are asked to stay home right now, we don't exactly have the opportunities that we've normally had to, uh, to get out and, you know, um, expose ourselves to lots of microbes, but yeah, in general, and especially again, going back to early life, um, they say, yeah, there's there's a book um, by two scientists and it's called Let Them Eat Dirt mm. um, and talking about the value of letting kids just get dirty and, and not in a way that's going to expose them to disease, but just kind of that, the nice clean dirt, like letting them out in the yard to play a lot and and making mud pies and that sort of thing that that's good for microbial diversity. Okay.
0: Yeah. Let them, let them eat the clean dirt, not the swamp dirt. Yeah. (laughs) So what, a
1: and like, no, go ahead. And also, um, with animals, I think it's still worth being careful. Um, because you know, there can be different pathogens when the, the kids play with animals like at a petting zoo or something. But, um, in terms of just like, you know dirt out in the garden i think that's the the safer kind of yeah
0: i so i work uh with a company run by brenda watson and i don't know if you know who brenda watson is but she started renew life which is uh one of the biggest probiotic makers out there and she said that you could test uh an owner's microbiome and you could test the dog their pet's microbiome and without knowing which dog and which owner was to who you could actually match them up because of their similar microbiome. And I thought that was crazy.
1: I would believe that. Yeah. Cause, um, yeah, even among humans, like a shared environment means you're more likely to have the same microbes. And yeah, with the dogs too. Um, I have no doubt that's the case. It's
0: kind of crazy. All right. So what, uh, Mm -hmm. what are you working on these days?
1: Um, I'm doing a lot of writing for, um, different publications. Um, I'm a contributing editor at Microbiome Times, and I do a lot of um, writing about sort of biotechnology and how this area of the microbiome is going to lead to new diagnostics and treatments. Um, And also um, sort of more, yeah, consumer-friendly stuff um, on probiotics or, or gut health in general, um, so, yeah. So, I love digging in. You know, every new writing assignment is an opportunity to learn more and uh, and talk to cool people. So, yeah. That's what's keeping me busy. Nice. So,
0: if people want to read or, you know, subscribe to what you're doing, what where can they do that?
1: Uh, they can go to my website by Chris Campbell. That's B-Y-K-R-I-S Campbell.com. And I have a section there that's um, that has a list of my work under the my work section. And um, there are different articles, some of my favorites from um, over the years, and they're all in different categories. So if someone has a specific area they're interested in, they can read up on it there. And I also tweet a lot. So it's at by Chris Campbell um, and dialogue with a lot of the scientists in the field, um, and have a lot of fun learning again on Twitter. So
0: Great. Yeah. Well, I will have all those in the show notes. Uh, Christina, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It was really interesting.
1: Thank you so much, Lucas. It was a pleasure.
0: I enjoyed having Christina on. I hope you did too. So to summarize a few of her tips through the episode... Uh, She said probiotics and prebiotics were how you could approach altering your microbiome. For probiotics, she suggested you look for brands that list the actual strains on the packaging. So, you know, if you're looking at a label and it just says lactobacillus acidophilus, that could be, you know, one of hundreds of different kinds of Lactobacillus acidophilus. Lactobacillus is basically the genus. Acidophilus is the species. And for the strain, you want to see letters or numbers or something like that after the word uh, acidophilus. So it would look like uh, Lactobacillus acidophilus DDS1 with a little trademark symbol to kind of let you know it's a trademarked ingredient. Speaking of trademarked ingredients, uh, often you know, they have more studies on them. They have standardized amounts of active ingredients. So you kind of know what you're getting, what you're paying for. However, you know, often the studies on them are kind of thinly veiled marketing. You know, it's, it's hard to trust what they find uh, it, because, you know, the better the study, the better the sales basically. So there are some pluses and minuses with trademarked ingredients. I tend to think the pluses outweigh the minuses, but that isn't always the case. Uh, Christina, she liked the liquid probiotics uh, and mentioned kefir as a probiotic food that can shift the microbiome. As far as prebiotics go, Christina liked resistant starch, XOS, FOS, and fiber. She mentioned that the more varied types of fiber you have, the more diversity you're going to get with your microbiome. And that tends to be a positive thing for your health. Uh, I will put A personal note in about the resistant starch, though, years ago, when people first started getting into resistant starch, you know, the way to do it was to eat potato starch. And so I I remember, like, buying five bags of uh, Bob's Red Mills potato starch, thinking, you know, it was going to be this thing that I consume every day. And some people found it helped them lose weight, you know, sleep better and have more energy. But others found it really made them feel bad, almost the exact opposite. And I was in that latter category. So like most things for the microbiome, you know, your reaction is really highly personalized and uh, you're going to have to experiment to see what works for you. So now for a personal update, uh, I've been messing around with my gut and the microbiome now since January. And I have a whole uh, podcast written about this really cool gut protocol I did. It was awesome. But I'm just kind of waiting for Brian to get back into the picture uh, before I share it. But one particularly interesting experiment that I wanted to share involved Acromantia, which is uh, one of the you know bugs that I asked Christina about. So Ken Lassison's website said there are studies showing polyphenols from cranberries and maybe pomegranates could increase acromancia. Uh, polyphenols are basically like their food. So I took cranberry pills and drank cranberry juice for. I don't know, about a month and a half. And I timed it so I started the cranberry right after my last microbiome test so that my next microbiome test would show if it worked at growing acromantia. Now, I personally have low acromantia levels, you know, they're around 0.001%. Now, before that, you know, you think that that sounds, oh my gosh, that's so low. Normal levels are 0.018%. So, you know, it's not like uh, you got these guys coming out of your ears or anything. So anyway, after doing the cranberry for a month and a half, I did a gut test at the end of April and I found that my acromantia levels had risen uh, from 0.001% to 0.002%. So not that impressive to be honest uh, i was expecting maybe levels closer to normal i will say often bacteria grow in exponential ways so you know if i continue on with the cranberry maybe my next test will show 0.004 uh, percent which would mean to me it just kind of takes a while for these little guys to get going overall though uh don't expect cranberry to magically cure low levels of Acromansia. i may give uh the the probiotic that Christina mentioned, the Pendulum Probiotic, a try, which has acromancia in it. It's a little spendy though, uh, so I kind of have to decide if it's worth the investment. And living in Arizona, I wonder about shipping it right now too. Uh, a friend on Twitter already ordered Pendulum, so I'll share his results when he lets me know. Uh, check out the show notes for links on all this stuff, as well as uh, some product links to prebiotics on Amazon. You may be interested in trying. Uh, if you get value from the show and you can help us out by shopping through our Amazon banner on our website, we would be deeply grateful. Uh, next podcast is going to be about how to improve your vision uh, in as little as two weeks with simple and time-tested methods. So keep your eye out on that for the next in the next couple of weeks. Uh, thanks for listening. Be well.